Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 11, Dialogue for Professional Development, with Sarah Kaysen and Seanad David. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. Gosh, there's a lot of people in this room today, Tom. Yeah, we've got uh, quite a party going on in here, haven't we? University colleague and a school colleague. We have. So I'm being asked the questions today, Tom. um, Yes. Because uh, what we're going to present to you today in this episode is a, a, a bit more a discussion around the presentation that I... Uh, my colleague Sarah Kaysen, who we'll introduce in a moment, and my colleague Shana David are going to present at the USET conference, which is the University's Council for the Education of Teachers annual conference in Leeds. I would expect that by now we've been and done it, so I hope we did well. <laughs> yes, I hope your future selves are very pleased with yourselves. Yes, yeah, so my workload in this episode is going to be pretty low because I just get to sit and watch this really interesting stuff going on. But I suppose we should introduce our guests. Shauna David, we know very well as the Welsh language voice of the podcast. If any of you listen to us in Welsh, you'll know a lot about Shauna, but we've occasionally had you in English as well. Welcome, Shauna. And Sarah Kaysen, a podcast veteran from season one. Absolutely. And they were fun times, weren't they? They were fun times. (laughs) We came to your school. Now you've come up to here. So You've had a promotion, I think, since season one. I have, one. I have. I'm now head teacher. That's my grand title of Palmerston Primary, but I know I've been there for many, many years. But um, yes, it's a wonderful all good. school as oh, well. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay, well, we are going to hear today about the work that Emma and Seaned and Sarah, and I've been involved a little bit as well, but I don't get to go to the conference because how many people do you need to send to a conference to, to give one presentation? We're going to hear a little bit about this work on dialogue as a resource to inform teachers' professional development. It's basically looking at how how we use professional dialogue to help student teachers understand our professional standards in Wales and and how we can support student teachers to improve generally. If you are interested in seeing this, you can see this on our YouTube channel um, so you can get extra excitement, but it works just as well in audio form. So, Sean Ed, for our international listeners, and I would probably include our English listeners over the border, do you want to kick us off with some stuff about initial teacher education in Wales? Because it's not exactly the same as what's going on in England, is it? No, and there has been a huge amount of reform in Wales since education became devolved back in 2000. Uh, Welsh government now has a responsibility for education and they've been very keen to establish their own very distinctive vision for education. So that in itself has meant change. But specifically for ITE, there was a a report by Tabra and one by Furlong as well, both reviews of ITE providers. And as a result of those, there was a new process of um, new emphasis on partnership as part of initial teacher education. And we had to um, go for accreditation. So all these new programmes were um, newly accredited for 2019. So that, I suppose, was the the first major change that impacted us. On top of that, there were new professional standards for teaching and leadership, and these were introduced for the whole workforce. But the decision was then made that they would also be used to assess student teachers on IT programmes. So that has also meant change. 
Here in Cardiff Partnership, we opted for the research-informed clinical practice model because we felt this addressed the agenda the Welsh Government had, you know, where there was a renewed emphasis on partnership working with HEIs expected to work really closely with partnership schools. And we felt that this clinical practice model provided us with that opportunity to interrogate and integrate both theory and practice in schools or to provide students with the opportunity to engage in interrogating both these knowledge, these different types of knowledge in both settings. And then to come more up to date, we're currently in the process of applying once more for re-accreditation of our programmes. And um, doing these types of projects, research projects, really has informed us. And we now have a better understanding of how student teachers learn. And we know this is going to be a feature of the um, new accreditation. We have to establish our own vision about what we know about how student teachers learn and that will obviously be part of our bid moving forward. Yeah, so lots of education reform in Wales. I think the reforms to initial teacher education almost got a bit overshadowed at the time by the new curriculum for schools. Obviously that's of interest to a lot more people but it was an equally big deal really. I mean, you mentioned research-informed clinical practice, Sam, and there's a whole episode in that if we really wanted to. But just to kind of say, you know, there are many ways you can see teacher education. You can see it as an apprenticeship or you can see it that universities provide theory and then off you go and you do it in practice in school. But you've got a quote that sort of neatly encapsulates what research-informed clinical practice is for those that are not familiar. Yes, the Burn and Mutton 2015 quote, which we have plastered on a lot of our documentation, actually, um, here at Cardiff Partnership. And it is very much... they. Uh, use the word dialogue, but in order to depict that process of debating, questioning, reflecting and challenging both research-based understanding of teaching and learning and then the professional understanding of experienced teachers. And, and dialogue is the word that they happen to use to depict that sort of interaction be- between the two. And as it happens, you know, we also decided on the word dialogue in a different type of meaning um, as a feature of this project as well. But I think as part of the um, Bernard Mutton quote, there's also a reference to, you know, within the different contexts of school and university. And we are very, very aware that it's not that one type of knowledge features more prominently in one setting and another type of knowledge in the other. It's the fact that students get the opportunity to engage in understanding how they relate to one another in both contexts. And that is why we decided on the research-informed clinical practice model. Yeah, so let's stick the quote in, shall we? So it's bringing research-based understandings of teaching and learning into dialogue, as you said, into dialogue with the professional understandings of experienced teachers. A, to facilitate and deepen the interplay between the different kinds of knowledge generated and validated within the different contexts of school and university. And B, to provide scope for beginning teachers to interrogate each in light of the other, bringing both to bear on interpreting and responding to their classroom experiences. So long-winded quote, isn't it? But it's basically saying that the the two things, theory and practice, are of equal importance, but they, they have to be interwoven and they have to exist in both school and university. 
Exactly, yes. Yeah, and then I suppose the other the other bit of reform to pull out, which might be of interest to our listeners, particularly those who are not so familiar with Wales, is this idea that we've got new professional standards. So not a checklist, not the old ones, something quite new about those. So I suppose for the benefit of our non-Welsh listeners, Sean, Ed, um, can you kind of quickly give us a rundown of what these standards are like and maybe what they're not like as well? Wow, well, yeah, here goes. <laughs> they are aspirational, let's say that to start with. They're holistic as well. They're based around shared values and dispositions. And we have five standards in total. The major one is pedagogy. And then there are four others. They are professional learning, innovation, collaboration and leadership. So all these five standards support one another. And specifically, the four professional learning, innovation, collaboration and leadership support pedagogy. Pedagogy in itself is split into three smaller segments, one being refining teaching, which is possibly the most straightforward, advancing learning then, and the more challenging one, influencing learning. So these pedagogy standards, we or the elements within these standards will be developed and supported by use of elements within other standards, if that makes sense. I suppose the, the, the point to make here is that these were holistic, they're very aspirational, because they were designed for the workforce. But of course, our challenge is that when the decision was made to use these to monitor and assess student teachers, and with the gatekeepers to the profession, we have to make decisions whether students were meeting specific elements. So this did make this a huge challenge to use these sort of holistic standards in this way to assess progress. And I think that's partly why we decided to get involved in this project, because we we needed a better understanding of, or we needed a shared understanding of what these standards and their elements meant and how they worked together as well. Yeah, so they provide us with a descriptor for obtaining qualified teacher status and, and levels above that, but but not a whole lot else, do they? No, and this is what I suppose we needed was some meat on the bones. And with this project, we decided we'd try and find out what those elements might look like, because they will obviously look different in different contexts as well. So, you know, this is not a prescriptive list, not a tick list. But it just does exemplify what these standards could look like in different places. And as you say, Tom, there are uh, these three descriptors. So we do have a QTS descriptor. We then have an induction descriptor as well, which is for those um, students or when they will be newly qualified teachers at the end of their first year. But there's also a descriptor for highly effective practice and We were funded in this project by um, the two consortia. They were provided with money by Welsh Government to support the work of IT providers. And they decided that they did want to include this highly effective practice descriptor in the work of this project in order for it to be useful as well within the wider community, not just for um, students on IT programmes. And of course, we want students to be aiming high. We want them to be aware of what that continuum in their professional learning journey as well. Yeah, so it's important to kind of pull out of that, isn't it? The fact that 
when we come up with a project that helps us to understand aspirational, holistic standards to help new members of the profession, we have to be really careful not to fall into the trap of producing things to copy or checklists to tick off. Exactly, yes. Yes. Okay, just one more piece of big context, I think, for the listeners is probably we're going to be using these things called the steel descriptors in this discussion. Now, they are not part of the professional standards, but they're something that we came up with and and put together because... Yeah, the QTS descriptor is fine, but the student teachers need some sort of bits between zero and that, I suppose, don't they? And so do you want to just quickly give us an explanation of when we're talking about the steel descriptors, what are we on about? Yeah, well, as you say, they're not pan whales. They're just uh, here for us in Cardiff partnership. They're the Carol Steel descriptors. So the student moves from being unaware initially in their education. They then move on to being aware And then the next stage is capable, and at capable, we would award them with QTS. But we did decide to put another category in, which we called QTS Plus. So then, of course, this QTS Plus aligns with the induction uh, descriptor, but also what Carol Steele calls inspired. So then there are a set of words to to go along with these unaware, aware, capable and QTS. For example, if a student is unaware, they will be limited or they will be limited on no impact. Their practice might be erratic, they're lacking rigour, over-reliant and so forth. So there's a set of words to try and, and help mentors and students to understand what we mean by these different levels, the unaware, aware and capable. But we, we liked these because we thought the whole idea is not that student teacher is unable to do something at the beginning, just that they're not yet aware of the requirement or not yet aware of what they need to do. So it's moving them along that awareness route, really, and providing them with that awareness in order to finally become capable or even in in some cases many of the students will be QTS plus. Okay so that's sort of setting the scene of the landscape that we're working in over here in Wales which is where we're trying to be aspirational, we're trying to be holistic, we're trying not to have checklists, we're trying not to get people to copy things but we have new members of the profession who need some sort of bridge between where they are and where they want to be that gives them something to grab hold of but doesn't prescribe or give them things to copy. So a tricky task. My final request, I think, of Sean, before I get I let you have a little, uh, little rest after all this scene setting, there's obviously a need there. So what was the project that was set up to try and meet this need? Yes, well, the aims were to produce some sort of resource, as you say, which would support both the student and the mentor in our partnership school, to have this shared understanding of the different elements and what they might mean. So we set about working with schools to film short 10, 15 minutes, possibly some some of them are slightly longer, short films and videos, clips of mentors and students in dialogue with one another. So that was the, the aim initially. At the end of the first year, then, we evaluated the resource and we made some discoveries. And 
and one of them being that the student teachers learn and develop through the standards. And it, as you said, Tom, it's not that tick list. It's learning through the standards rather than against them or trying to evidence against single ones. And the second discovery uh, was that the quality of the professional dialogue which happened between the student teacher and the mentor is key and especially the types of questions which they were being asked. So therefore, when we ran the project in its second year, we did some refining and what we did, we provided further guidance about the types of questions which we believed that the mentor should be asking and which would um, result in the most reflective uh, responses from the students. And then at the end of the second year, we asked our partner schools to trial then the resources these that they'd produced with student teachers and mentors in order to evaluate their um, efficacy, really. And this is the project we're going to talk to you about today, because we did make some unexpected discoveries, I think, again, in the process of evaluating then the impact of these as professional learning tools, um, if you like. Yeah, thank you, Shona. So that, that sets the scene of a really quite complex landscape in which we're trying not to reduce becoming a teacher to a kind of apprenticeship, but in which we've got some some quite tricky things to overcome. Luckily for us, uh, Emma's quite interested in this stuff, has done a fair amount of research into this. I know, haven't you, Emma? And so there are some concepts from the literature which can at least give us some pointers so we're not leaping in with both feet. So would you like to give us a few a few choice bits of literature that, that provide a bit of a guidance here? Yeah, I think we just need to go back to that idea of dialogue and why we decided that recording a discussion between mentor and student might reveal a thing or two about how they're progressing from unaware to aware, aware to capable in particular elements of the standard. What we didn't want was bits of evidence that sort of exemplify, if you do it like this, then you've ticked the standard. We felt it would be far better to get student teachers to reflect on and discuss how they moved from unaware to aware, aware to capable in particular elements of the standards, because we had a hunch that it might reveal more to us about how they were learning. So to return to the literature then with that in mind, we can turn to to McIntyre's work to begin with, who in 2005 put forward a really helpful continuum of knowledge that teachers draw upon to guide and develop their practice. There are eight aspects on this continuum, um, starting with craft knowledge at number one, craft knowledge for classroom teaching, because obviously classroom teachers draw upon that really important knowledge of craft experience that they've had over the years to guide what they do in their lessons. He says that another form of of knowledge that they draw upon is is when they actually articulate why they're doing what they're doing in the classroom. So they articulate their craft knowledge. The third one is deliberative or reflective thinking for classroom teaching. And I guess that's a little bit more than articulating. It's sort of deliberately thinking about what happened in your practice, what is happening in your practice in order to sort of unpack it, think about it critically and move it on based on what you found through that process. 
process. And it goes all the way up to number eight, which is research findings and conclusions. And somewhere in the mix there, we've got how they draw upon uh, classroom action research, um, how they draw upon practical suggestions for teaching based on research. So there are a number of different streams of knowledge that teachers draw upon in order to make changes to their practice, to reinforce that what they think is working is working to help them find new avenues. What McIntyre does stress is that this is not a hierarchy. So he's not saying that a teacher drawing upon research findings and conclusions that have been published from higher education institutions is going to be of greater benefit than craft knowledge that they draw upon from their experience or from from what they witness or observe in others' classrooms. He's just simply saying that look at the complex streams of knowledge that teachers can uh, have at their disposal to help them continue to improve and develop. So, We were particularly interested in one, two and three that I just mentioned, craft knowledge for classroom teaching, articulation of craft knowledge and deliberative or reflective thinking for classroom teaching. Because arguably a school based teacher educator or mentor in the case of of our provision commonly supports and encourages these types of knowledge. That's not to say that they don't engage with research findings and don't have a bearing on the student teacher's engagement with those types of knowledge. But I would say that most commonly they are helping student teachers develop those first three. Now, we've got a bit of a a problem when it comes to craft knowledge or what Hager and McIntyre refer to as teachers knowledge in use, otherwise known as tacit knowledge. This is really complex. It's really important to refrain from underestimating the complexity of the sort of cognitive, invisible cognitive processes going on in the mind of the teacher when they're teaching. And I think you have to be a teacher to really know and appreciate that process. I would say that Hagger and McIntyre put this really clearly when they say that the craft of interactive classroom teaching is dependent for its necessary fluency on holistic schemas, on selective perceptions and on thinking and knowledge which are overwhelmingly tacit and barely conscious. For a novice coming into teaching, it's very, very difficult for them to become witness to or become party to that tacit, barely conscious, complex processes going on in the mind of their mentor because they can't see inside their head. They can only see what their mentor is doing live in the classroom. But sitting underneath that, as Hagar and McIntyre say, is this complex sort of architecture of schema going on that's guiding what they're doing. So, They propose that to be able to go on learning from experience, student teachers themselves need to have developed the skills and understandings and dispositions to evaluate their present practices and their craft knowledge against a wide range of practical, theoretical and research-based criteria and to use these evaluations as a means towards further development. So, It's kind of a fancy way of saying they need to get out into the open what's going through their mind or they need to become witness to or or hear their mentor articulate what's going on in their mind when they're making decisions um, with regard to their craft knowledge. They need to 
integrate and interrogate those against what they're reading in books, what they're getting from literature, be it published or be it um, inquiry that's going on in the school. They need to evaluate all of this and then go, right, okay, what do I need to do in order to improve? That is incredibly complex. But the place where that tends to come out most clearly is when you get an expert teacher in dialogue with a novice teacher, when they start to talk about their practice, their craft knowledge becomes visible and it becomes something that the student teacher can tap into as a resource to to move themselves forward. So dialogue and the benefits of dialogue within teaching and learning, there's quite a lot out there, particularly with regards to a dialogic approach to teaching and learning in the classroom with pupils. Um, I think it's Professor Robin Alexander who's a bit of a guru and, and you know, the, the top dog, <laughs> certainly in the UK when it comes to dialogic teaching. But actually, if we look to the work of Renwick, they say that actually dialogue is really, really powerful in teacher education as well. However, they do sound a note of caution. They warn that assessment-driven teacher education practices can limit opportunities for professional dialogue about education and learning. And as Sean Ed rightfully said earlier on, if we see the standards as a checklist and we see assessment against them as being a process of gathering evidence to prove that you've met them, then we sort of eradicate the opportunity really to talk about progress, to talk about how we're learning, because the emphasis is about, did you meet it? Show me that you did. So what Remwick proposed is that the process of becoming a teacher and forming a teacher identity needs to be explicit and collegial rather than haphazard and isolated. And they say that building identity as a teacher can be a formal and facilitated process that utilises discussion or dialogue in our case and sharing to create understanding through interactions with others. And I really like this. Ultimately, you don't have to do it alone. And actually, if you talk about it, if you get into dialogue, either as novice and expert or as just teacher to teacher, you can really begin to learn and understand how you progress as a teacher. And so these concepts became really important to us, um, not only in understanding what was going on, making sense of what was going on in our project, but also in underpinning our findings. The last point I'd like to make is that Lochran proposes that if we conceptualise teaching as a profession that is an intellectual endeavour and is, is highly cognitive as well as practical, then we begin to sort of raise the status of the profession. I think this is really important. He suggests that dialogic approaches to teacher education, such as pedagogical reasoning, like re- explaining why you're doing what you're doing and why it's working or not working, It elevates the profession from the performative act of teaching to an informed knowledge-based practice. And, you know, as a teacher working with teachers and trying to serve new teachers, I think that really sort of raises the status of the profession. And I know from my own experience that there's a lot of really deep thinking that goes into developing as a teacher. Okay, so we've got a context in which we're trying to be very aspirational about teaching. We're trying to say it's not something that's like a trade or a craft. It's more than that, uh, but there's more than just theory. So we know that that's, that's an aspirational scene. 
We've now heard that the literature is telling us that the actual act of being a teacher is extremely complicated and therefore quite difficult to pick up. As a new member of the profession, Emma's kind of explained all of that stuff. So then we find ourselves asking this question, well, if we've got mentors out in school looking after these new teachers and assessing them, and this is the key, I think, isn't it? They're trying to do two things. They're trying to develop them in this very aspirational way, but they do actually need to assess them as well. How can we actually make these people more confident and more competent when using our chosen steel descriptors? So I think, Emma, you can just bring this into land now before we start looking at some examples and unpacking them. Yeah. So as Sean had said, at the end of year one of this project, we realised that it was the quality of the dialogue between mentor and student teacher at what we call key assessment points in their um, initial teacher education journey that can really bring out, tease out the dispositions, the behaviours that are indicative of unaware, aware, capable and QTS plus. And that it doesn't matter which of the elements of the standards that they're talking about. If they're asking the right questions, such as how did you learn? What did your practice look like before when you were unaware compared to when you were aware? When you're asking those sorts of questions... It encourages the student teacher to become sort of metacognitive, to think about how they were thinking, to think about how they were learning and what kind of strategies were helping them to learn. And so what we try to advocate to mentors working with student teachers on our programme and what we try to exemplify through the videos that we're going to give you a little clip of in a moment is that the mentor feedback should emphasise and improve not prove attitude. So by asking them, how are you learning? What does that learning look like? What did you do? What was it like before and after? Rather than show me the evidence that you have met this particular element of the standard, then the mentor can become party to uh, and what can become visible is the way that the student teacher is learning. And when you know how the student is learning, it's sort of similar to the principles of AFL, you can determine what they need to help them move forward. Or even better if, you can help them understand what they need to do to help themselves. Because ultimately, we want them to become autonomous. We want them to have the, the agency to move themselves forward throughout their career. And so we encourage them to engage in professional dialogue with the student teachers. But we encourage them to engage in professional dialogue that is built upon really purposeful questioning. So we're going to play a clip now, Tom. It's a clip that comes from this project and the resources that Sean had mentioned earlier on. In this clip, you're going to hear the dialogue that took place at the first progress review between a mentor and a student teacher on the PGC Secondary English programme. And it was at the stage where this student was trying to move their practice from being unaware to aware. So this student is quite early on in their teacher education journey. The student is talking about how she moved from unaware to aware in one of the elements of the pedagogy standard, and it's called progression in learning. Now, we know as teachers that one of our ultimate 
goals with our pupils is to ensure that we're facilitating progression amongst our pupils. But that can be really quite challenging for student teachers. So we're going to hear now Lucy and her mentor Grace discussing how she moved from unaware to aware in progression in learning. Hi, my name is Lucy Morgan and I'm a PGC English secondary student and we're at St. Cyrie's School. Hi, I'm Grace Doherty. I'm an English teacher in St. Cyrie's School and I'm mentoring Lucy. And we are looking at Pedagogy 11, which is progression in learning. Could you tell me a little bit, Lucy, about how you uh, moved from unaware to aware for the standard? Yeah, so I think when I first came to school, I had a limited understanding of like how learners progress and how you can almost observe that in, in individual lessons and overall as a scheme of work. And then I think I was unaware because I was team teaching. I wasn't in control of the whole lesson and therefore I couldn't really see the progression. It was only in like a starter that I could try and work it out. And I think the biggest example of my being unaware was um, with year 11 group discussions because I was only, only taught them once before they actually had their GCSE group discussion. So I didn't see any of the impact other than when I went in and observed some of their discussions. I, didn't, I couldn't see if I had made an impact on them and their learning. And then I think when I went to aware, it was when I was able to plan not just an individual lesson, but throughout the week, I was able to plan multiple lessons because I, I knew the goals that I wanted to set for them. And I was able to kind of individually with the lessons, work it out and see the progression there. And to give you an example would be the GCSE um, year 10 with uh, English literature. I knew their exam was in January and I knew that I had only a few lessons to get them to where they needed to be. So I was able to plan almost like a mini scheme of work to get them there and I knew that each lesson they had progressed in their learning. Could you tell me a little bit about how this is coming through more generally in your practice? Yeah, so I think with my lesson plans, um, with my lesson intentions and my evaluations, I think my lesson intentions, each lesson intention now, I use Bloom's taxonomy, but I'm able to kind of set out the skills that I want them to be able to do. And those now range and they have a progression just in those. And then with my evaluations, I'm able to say like, they have progressed and then I know what I will need to do for the next steps. And those next steps, you can really see the progression because it's not just like behavior or what I need to do, it's the skill that they need to learn in order to then get where they needed them to be. And I also think, and I know this isn't a standard, but I also think through my relationships with the students that they're coming to me and asking these questions and I'm seeing a much more um, confident student when they're going to plan and write any answer they're doing and that kind of shows the learning progression that they've had just not just me but in the lesson what <laughs> things made the difference in getting for you from unaware to aware and were there any other standards that maybe came in there as well yeah i think definitely c1 and c2 so the collaboration because i was able to then kind of sit down with you in our mentor meetings and the other teachers and kind of plan that whole scheme of work kind of scheme of work for, for that week and I knew where I wanted them to be at. The teacher said that that's where they wanted them to be at. And I was just able to have like the autonomy just to plan that. 
Also with um, departments, everything's on Google Drive, like everyone's kind of in the same place. So it was really nice for me to be able to kind of talk to any of the teachers, even if they're not that class, and be able to be like, right, how can I get them to this scale? What task could I do? So that was really big. Also P16 and P7, so 17. So the learners having like an active role in their own learning, if they said to me that they didn't quite understand something or they wanted to go over it, that was really important I did that because otherwise there wouldn't be a progression that was correct. They would progress, but they wouldn't have understood any of it. So that was really important to get them to reflect on their learning and then act on that. Okay, so that was Lucy and Grace in professional dialogue. So Emma, you're going to tell us about what this kind of did for the students learning and I know you're going to hand over to Sarah to talk about how this has worked as a, as a professional development tool out in school. Yeah and maybe I'm just going to be emphasising some of the things that you thought when you listened to Lucy so articulately talking about her progress. What we were sort of stopped in our tracks about generally when we were listening to the professional dialogues like the one you've just heard is that it really does make visible how Lucy learned and progressed. She talks about at the unaware stage when it came to progression in learning having a very limited understanding of progression because she'd actually not been teaching year 11 as she gave the example for very long um, before they had a summative assessment. So that concept of progression, how it happens, she was limited. She was unaware at that particular stage. What's also pretty important is that the dialogue identified teacher education processes that were both helping and hindering Lucy. So she talks about how at the start, she was doing quite a lot of team planning and teaching with her mentor. And she was responsible for taking small sections of the lesson. And she shrewdly observes that that was actually stopping her from being able to understand progression because she was only responsible for one tiny bit of the lesson rather than seeing how her bit fed into their progress against the learning intention for the lesson in its entirety. So it wasn't until her mentor gave her the opportunity to plan a sequence of lessons and see progression over time. So actually, again, her progression was very much caught up in her experience and the amount of teaching that she'd been doing. She was able to articulate the things that were helping her to progress. What was also very heartening to hear was that another thing that really helped her progress was the learners themselves and so it makes her learning visible this this type of professional dialogue it could allow then um, we'd have to ask grace herself uh, if this was the case but it could allow her mentor to plan interventions and approaches to help her progress even further now that she knows the things that were helping and hindering her it also emphasised how Lucy learnt through the standards. She gave some really powerful examples about how she was working with the standards and saw the standards in an integrated way. I think the most powerful example is when she says that it wasn't until she heard her learners reflecting on their learning that she came to realise that they could see their progression as well. And so that in turn confirmed to her that what she was doing as a teacher was helping them to progress. So not only was she seeing the pedagogy elements of the standards working in an integrated way, she also talked about collaborating. So the collaboration standard and its elements as being crucial to her understanding 
progression in learning. She talks about working with her mentor, about working with planning, medium-term planning, but also with other members of the department. And so I think that really proves quite powerfully and authentically that the standards have been designed to be integrated and that if they're used well and we ask the right questions, students will draw upon them in a more holistic way to talk about their progression. Lovely. And Sarah, you actually took this and used it out in school with both your mentors and your student teachers as a professional learning tool. So tell us a bit about that. That's right. Well, I think you're right, Tom. I think we had a bit of a free reign on how we use these videos. And I think for us, the first decision was, do we do them separately? Um, I think there was a little bit of caution in the in the respect from our mentors saying, well, can we talk openly and freely about things? But I think we all came to the conclusion that in the spirit of actually getting a shared understanding of the standards and in the spirit of openness and transparency, we'd watch them all together. So that was the first decision we decided to make. And I think with hindsight, it was the right one to do. And then I think what we decided to do was um, what do we actually do with the videos? So I asked our mentors what would be the most useful way of using them. And I think at that particular point of assessment in the PGC programme, lots of people were having discussions around the movement from aware to capable. So that was the decision we made um, so rather than looking at a journey from one student from you know perhaps the early stages to the end um, we looked at a series of videos based on the journey from aware to capable so what we did was everybody gathered around the room and we got the steel descriptors out in front of us and really it was quite open-ended you know we watched the videos and I basically said thoughts feelings what are your instinctive reactions to these dialogues. Here are the descriptors. Do you think the language of capable matches the way the students in the videos describe their practice and their progression? And do you feel that it if it was a fair reflection of that particular stage and why. So we had some really, really lovely conversations. And I have to say, you know, from what seemed like a quite an innocuous conversation, the learning and the, the outcomes that came from it were actually really powerful. So, yeah, it's interesting, actually, because we had Sean Watkins in the other day, a, c- a couple of weeks ago now, talking about this and, and Lucy Donovan as well. And they were talking about the fact that actually it's a two-way learning process and the mentors learn. I just love the fact that you you all decided that actually there were going to be no secrets from one another. You're going to do this together. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, it was really good because it must be quite hard as a student teacher to sort of voice an opinion or to voice um, concerns or, or anything in front of, you know, somebody who's more experienced than you and, and in a school context. But I have to say the students were absolutely fantastic because they talked about misconceptions. They talked themselves about consistency within grading anecdotally they had friends in other placements and you know well why are they unaware and why are we capable and and I think all those lovely conversations you have anecdotally came together in a professional context and they're all really relevant and I think our mentors as well have those conversations but I think you know it's the things we've said in an informal way actually became part of our development and our expertise as mentors so it was really really useful yeah and this backs up stuff in the literature about that there can be a status imbalance sometimes and if you you know you've got such an important role there in in just raising the status of the students so that they can 
engage with the mentors and if you can do that the magic really happens what did the what did the student teachers get out of it then well um it was really interesting actually because i think the most important thing for us was we discovered how student teachers were learning from engaging with the videos and i think the first thing i noticed and we all noticed was this the students from actually watching the dialogues recognize the dispositions and behaviors for learning that would enable their progress some of them well lots of them recognized their shortcomings and i don't mean that in a negative way but what i mean is actually in a powerful way that we had one particular student who really sort of stalled unaware and she'd had many conversations with her mentor and said look you know I need to get capable um, I don't know what to do you know I'm stuck on this please give me some answers you know I need more help I need more support I need more mentoring but actually that eureka moment when she watched them she actually turned to me and went oh I asked too many questions. She said, oh my goodness, I think I need to be a little bit more independent. I need to show a little bit more confidence. Now that wouldn't have necessarily come from anything other than that video because the way the students who talked at Capable you could see the dispositions, the confidence had grown. It wasn't just about the content of what they were giving as exemplification of why they'd hit capable. It was the fact that the way they spoke and those words on a page, you know, mainly impactful, mainly thorough, mainly robust, mainly independent, suddenly were brought to life in a really authentic way. And all those words, you know, became real. And the students were like, OK, we get it now. So we weren't expecting that. It was, it was you know, quite enlightening for us. So... You know, that was really, really useful. And I think as well, you know, our student teachers were able then to think about their journey from aware to capable. Again, that moving from dependence to independence. And again, for me, as you've said earlier, Emma, I know that the revelation of the ways of thinking that enable progress. And again, it's that open dialogue you mentioned, Tom, about, you know, having not saying necessarily it's it's more of an equal footing, isn't it? It's not being done to you. It's not being done actually it's not sort of you proving evidence but actually it's that lovely conversation where it's done with the student together so I know we've talked before about that culture of improve not prove but definitely that was seen through that dialogue which was really quite powerful. And loads of that stuff chimes with all the things that Sean was telling us and the things that Emma was telling us about the, the aspirational culture and the complexity of teaching what about the mentors then because they're such vital figures did they get something out of doing this with the students absolutely as well? and you know and i think again everybody was learning together which is everything we want in the spirit of you know that continuum of learning whatever stage you're at everybody got something out of them um and i think the you know the biggest thing was that greater consistency from watching the videos that commonality and shared understanding of at that particular point at that stage this is what it could look like and I know Sean Ed you talked about not copying it was very much don't just copy this and this is exactly what you need to do to get capable but actually that the sense the overall feeling it's quite ephemeral isn't it but that those sort of levels of understanding about the dispositions gave us a deeper understanding of what it meant to be to have that journey from in this particular point from aware to capable what it actually looked like through the use of authentic videos and I think mentors reached a better understanding of how to facilitate quality professional dialogue with their student teachers we talked didn't we about the quality of the questions in the past it was all about evidence gathering and you know show me prove it but actually when you talk in the right way with the right questions we're talking about the journey I know that's a cliche but the movement and the progress is so powerful and again that's what it's all about isn't it and creating that independence and you know just it was beautiful professional learning it just that the quality of conversation that arose 
there was a real buzz about the room and a natural professional dialogue made us reflect on our practice. You know, when it happens, it's lovely, isn't it? It's quite a rare treat when people go off on a tangent when you're having professional learning. But actually, it was a genuine feeling that it was helpful, it was useful. And, uh, you know, we're, we're the biggest cynics, aren't we, in the teaching profession? But, you know, I said, be honest. I want, I want the absolute honesty with you. Was this helpful? And everybody agreed that it actually really, really did help them. So it was great. Wonderful. And I I suppose we've mentioned a number of times already about these questions being key. So if anyone wants to have a go at this, Emma, what were the questions (laughs) we were asking? Well, I think just before I tell you what they were, we mustn't underestimate or overlook how important the quality of questioning is. I think it's all very well and good to say, oh, it all floats on a sea of dialogue, on a sea of talk. But really, it's skillful mentoring practice through very skillfully chosen questions. And so because we saw sort of a commonality across the quality of the videos where sort of those dispositions were able to come to the fore and that being sort of correlated with quality questions being asked, we we decided to try and really bring those questions to the fore. So we asked, what did your practice look like before and after progress was made? So from unaware to aware. And of course, that I suppose that's an open hand opportunity for reflection. You're asking them to be reflective on their practice. The second question is, what examples or artefacts of practice illustrate this? And although cynics out there might think, well, that sounds a lot like evidence to me. Em. Well, actually, if you listen, if you think back to Lucy... She was giving examples about how in her lesson evaluations and in her learning intentions, she had a much more sort of sense of precision about progression, how to craft a learning intention so that that could happen and also evaluate it so that she could see that it it was having an impact. She also talked about qualitative sort of data that was happening in the classroom, things that she was observing, things that learners were saying. And only in dialogue was she able to sort of give those examples, um, which were really powerful in backing up how, you know, we could tell that she wasn't unaware anymore. She was aware. We ask, what steps did your mentor take to support your progress? Which I suppose could be quite a scary question for a mentor asking their student. But if we are trying to sort of position mentor and student as sort of co-inquirers about teaching, you know, about putting them a bit more on an even standing in terms of working together in the assessment process, then we do need to give them the opportunity to say, you know, this is really working for me and actually I could do with a bit more of this or a bit less of that. We asked them, what steps did you take to support your progress? And again, that speaks back to that point about metacognition and giving them the opportunity to reflect on the tools, the approaches that they're using to move themselves forward. What research and inquiry activities supported your progress? Sean Ed um, spoke at the start about this sort of emphasis on a research-informed clinical practice model where we're asking to interrogate and integrate theory and practice. And so there's an opportunity there for them to reflect on those other forms of knowledge. And also, how did other areas of the standards support progress in this element? And I suppose we're really nudging them there to see and to reflect on the standards as being integrated so that they're thinking about collaboration as a vehicle for moving forward their practice when it comes to pedagogy, etc. So those were the questions. They're not too complex, but they are important in making the students' learning visible. 
And we all had a wonderful time doing this, didn't we? We filmed some really nice dialogues and we know that some of our school colleagues like Sarah have taken this and run with it as a professional learning tool. But there's been a broader impact as well. Yeah, there has. So beginning with the Cardiff Partnership, we've used these resources in our own professional learning for mentors and senior mentors. We uh, recorded Sarah talking about how she used uh, these resources with her mentors, as she just described to us in this episode. And that's hopefully been food for thought for other senior mentors out there about how they could use them in their own contexts. The consortia are, are quite pleased with these videos videos as they are also proving to be really beneficial to newly qualified teachers. And as we're quite a bit down the line now since the introduction and publication of these new professional standards, quite rightly the Welsh Government evaluated them. Um, It wasn't entirely a rosy picture but something that they did highlight as being particularly good practice was these resources. The resources as being a useful way of trying to understand the different elements of the standards and uh, gaining that shared understanding. And finally, as Sean had mentioned at the start, we are in the process of putting together our bid for re-accreditation. And as part of that process, we have got to define our vision of how student teachers learn. And because we have found through this project that dialogue is really, really important to that process, it's found its way in to the articulation of our vision of how student teachers learn. Great. So we've all had loads of fun uh, putting this project together. I mean, you, you three are going to have a great time up in Leeds at the USET conference. And I know there's going to be some interesting discussions at the end. I mean, this this is a great example of partnership working, genuine partnership working between school and university. We know why we have to do it, because Sean had explained about the clinical practice thing, the theory and practice in, in both contexts. I think it's going to be some uh, interesting discussions because I don't think the situation over in England is quite as rosy, is it? No, I'm not sure really. But I, I think the thing that we're sort of selfishly quite interested to know, and I know, Tom, you're in the middle of doing a systematic literature review on this, is... In what other contexts in initial teacher education is professional dialogue utilised to promote student teachers' learning and development? Because we're talking about it as a vehicle for holistic reflection on progress at key assessment points, as we call them. But I know that you've looked at some contexts where mentors are using really structured dialogue post-observation, after they've watched videos of practice. So this isn't the only application and we're really keen to find out more applications. Yeah, I think so. And even outside teacher education, potentially, would be quite interesting. Okay, so loads of interesting stuff. Um, Our short slots are going to be shamelessly based around this. I mean, something interesting, we hope we've uh, convinced you that something interesting is this collection of videos which we've placed on YouTube for your enjoyment and popcorn eating. So you can go to youtube.com forward slash at shared understanding youtube.com forward slash at shared understanding where you can see all of the videos hopefully even if you're not from wales and not using the professional standards not from the cardiff partnership not using the steel descriptors there's still enough in there which is kind of universal um, that it will be of use to you and potentially of interest to you. real teachers talking about their progress um, in in our professional standards but in teaching generally and then in terms of something to try i mean we would encourage you to have a go with this as a professional learning tool i mean sarah i know you chose to look at capable one sort of 
level, didn't you, of, of progress, but you could do it a different way. Yeah, I, I think the beauty of it is there's something for everyone in the videos, aren't there? But I think, as you're right, Tom, we chose capable because that was something we felt was important for us. But you could take the videos on a journey I call it horizontally and vertically, but, you know, um, across from uh, unaware to QTS plus. And so you could see that development again as you move through that confidence level and pick out all the elements from the steel descriptors or just generally what is it about the conversation that shows that growing level of professionalism, independence and all that agency that we love to see and hope and aspire for our teachers at any level in their journey. And I think, as I said, you know, you can choose them in so many different ways. It's great. Yeah, so plenty to try there with our with our videos, uh, plenty to kind of try to crystallise, as we were saying in, in this episode, the processes and ways of thinking and not the piles of things to point at of becoming a teacher. Well, I think it only remains for me to wish the three of you the very best of luck. I'm really sorry I'm not coming on a trip to Leeds with you. I hope you have a fantastic time and loads of lovely food and drink. Hopefully, listeners, you found that interesting. We, as ever, will be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma O'Doha and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were Sarah Kaysen from Palmerston Primary School in Barry and Shonid David from here at Cardiff Met. Thanks to them for taking part and also to Lucy Morgan and Grace Doherty, our video stars. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. The studio manager is Adrian Raps. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.